From Heterodox Academy, this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors, ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. My guest today is Nicholas Christakis. Nick is a physician and sociologist at Yale University. His previous books include Connected, about how social networks affect our health and our lives, and Death Foretold, about the sociology of prognosis. We'll be talking about his new book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, in which he writes about how evolutionary pressures gave human beings a set of social skills and desires that we can capitalize on to build a better society. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us on the show. Chris, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure having you on, and you were one of the first people to join Heterodox Academy. So we're talking about your new book. What do you want Heterodox Academy members and affiliates to get out of this book? Well, the book aspires to engage a set of big ideas about the evolutionary origins of a good society. It's a a book about how and why human beings can come together so that the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts, and the role that evolution played in that, shaping us, for example, to be friendly or cooperative um, or to teach and learn from each other. But actually, there is a connection to some of the political issues that are relevant to our country today, actually, and to many parts of the world, which is that whether they appreciated it or not, many of the fundamental liberal principles that the founders, at least of our country, um, enshrined in our constitution actually reflected and captured some of these deeply human qualities we have. For example, the freedom of assembly that's in the First Amendment captures the fact that we people like to live in groups and we like to choose our friends. We're not like a herd of cattle just thrown together. Uh, you know, we, we specifically choose who we want to associate with. This is actually very uncommon in the animal kingdom, that uh, this, this capacity to make friends. And yet here it is in a transformed way, you know, uh, <laughs> captured in our constitution or, or the freedom of speech, for example. One of the things that has made our species ascendant uh, or uh, the world over, I was going to say, or or rather, ascendant is a set of too triumphalist a word. What I mean is one of the spe- one of the things that has made our species capable of living all over the world in what E. O. Wilson has called the social conquests of the earth is not the kind of bodies we have. We have pathetic bodies. Uh, you know, uh, our bodies would only be suitable to live in one tiny little niche. You know, like in the African savanna, let's say. No, our it's our capacity for for culture our capacity to teach and learn from each other, which makes it capable, makes us capable of generating knowledge that we transmit across space and time. This is also part of the, our evolutionary heritage. It's very important. This capacity to teach each other things is very rare in the animal kingdom. Only certain animals do it. But to do that, we have to talk to each other. We have to actually create a culture of like open communication. And um, this also, you see, is is part of these sort of political principles enshrined in the First Amendment. So I think there is some connection between the the fundamental social and biological ideas I engage in the book and, let's say, more modern contemporary political concerns. And one of the topics of your book, in fact, the central topic is human universals. Can you talk a bit about why you think some disciplines have evolved so that you're not encouraged to study human universals in those disciplines and other disciplines have taken a different route? Well, this is actually an old problem in the sciences. I mean, I think Darwin, in a famous passage of one of his letters, talks about lumpers and splitters. 
um, you know, some scientists look for generalizable principles and lump things together. And other scientists are very interested in fine distinctions and split things apart. And both are important strands in a kind of scientific epistemology. Uh, they are, there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about either of those as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, but there is a kind of um, a sense in which, you know, after a couple of centuries of success with splitting, uh, you know, we have divided, you know, matter into ever smaller bits, you know, so we, we take, we take uh, matter and divide it into atoms or molecules, and then atoms and then subatomic particles. And we take, you know, organisms and divide them into, into, you know, uh, organs, and then cells, and then organelles within the cells, and then macromolecules. And then now we're looking at the biophysical interactions at the, at the level of uh, tiny forces between molecules intracellularly. Uh, we we have repeatedly divided uh, nature into ever smaller bits in an in an effort to seek understanding, and it's been hugely successful. But I think, especially in the last fifty years, there's been what I call the kind of assembly project of modern science, which is an effort to put put the parts back together to make a whole. And you see this in many disciplines. You know, you get systems biology, for example. Uh, or you, you get uh, efforts to kind of understand how the component parts fit together. You you get questions. You know, initially we understood the brain by looking at neurons. So Ramon y Cajal starts doing these fantastic uh, uh, cellular uh, mapping by using silver of neurons within the brain. But now we're asking, well, how do the neurons fit together to give us consciousness or memory or all these other properties where you assemble the components into the parts or or network science does this you know how do you how do you assemble networks of genes or networks of computers or networks of people to get these collectivities so so there is this other strand that's very ascend, that that's ascendant right now or very prominent i think rightly so which of lumpers you know like how do we how do we put the things back together and um and part of that now there was always a tradition of this i don't i'm sort of simplifying it but part of it is relevant to what we're discussing because because there are there were always a tradition, for example, in anthropology of trying to draw distinctions between groups. You know, let's let's spread out around the world. This was partly a colonial enterprise, incidentally. You know, scientists sort of accompanied the spread of Europeans around the world and sort of said, "Look, other people in different parts of the world live differently than we do. Let's study it." You know, you have Evans Pritchard and, you know, Malinowski, Bronislaw Malinowski and and uh, and Ruth Benedict and, you know, all these famous anthropologists from the, you know, 100 years ago spreading out around the world. Clifford Geertz and, and Levi Strauss, you know, into the 70s, for example, looking deeply at ways of living at different different cultures, different groups that live in different ways and pointing out that that there's so much interesting variety in human beings. But and those people tended to reject the claim that there was anything deep, fundamental, and universal about human beings. And I think they they were wrong. You know, they overcorrected. Uh, there are there is interesting variety across groups of people, but there are also fundamental, universal commonalities. Which, if we lump together, if we look if we look at all of this variety and try to find underlying principles, we can. And that's that is in fact partly what Blueprint tries to do. Yeah, I found anthropology to be probably the most problematic field in that area. I know Alan Fisk. I don't recall if you cite him in the book, but at the moment, he seems to be one of the few cultural anthropologists who's interested in universals. 
I mean, there are, of course, Donald Brown famously wrote a book in 1991 on cultural universals, and there is a kind of ferment in um, in anthropology. There is there there's a tension even in that field, but but this is important because it does tubtail a little bit on some of the political issues that concern members of Heterodox Academy, in that there's a there's a kind of way in which we we could be committed to fundamental liberal principles and this notion of our shared humanity, our common humanity. Which is an idea that grows out of the out of the Enlightenment, an idea that sort of says that human beings share fundamental properties in common, and I think uh, that 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 is actually a very pleasing and happy thought. It is a recognition that there's more that unites us than divides us. It's it's a way of finding uh, common ground with other people, even if they have dissimilar ideas, because after all, we have fundamentals that we all share, and you know our propensity to love our partners, uh, to be friendly. Uh, with other people to cooperate, to uh, to teach and learn from each other, and so forth. And these this this recognition that we all share something in common, I think, should be embraced. And this is one of the reasons that I find that uh, sort of extremes of the political spectrum, both on the far left and on the far right, that tend to reject this idea, that tend to be interested in differences between people, is uh, is I think both scientifically unsound. And or not unsound, but it's scientifically negligent and philosophically dangerous. So another thing you talk about in the book is figuring out human flourishing. And you use the analogy of a tree. You, you take it from the philosopher Philippa Foote and how, you know, a tree is flourishing because it's growing tall and that's what you expect trees to do. And so when you talk about human flourishing, you can also look at what humans naturally do. But one of the problems with human beings is that they sometimes flourish or get an internal sense of well-being from fighting wars against other people, from forming a group and actually fighting a very violent war. So how do you reconcile this dilemma? Yeah, so one of the things, one of the qualities that is, I mean, this is in a way one of the more depressing realizations in my own scientific career in the last 10 or 20 years is that sort of in-group bias or tribalism is also an innate inevitable uh, quality in human beings, you know, the, this us versus them, this, this we-ness, this, this fact that we, we like our own groups uh, and, and not other groups. Um, this is also an old topic, uh, both philosophically and scientifically. There's a sort of body of research called the minimal group paradigm of psychologists beginning in the 70s were able to show that even tiny differences that could be cultivated and even arbitrary differences between groups, highlighting that would 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 make a group the in group not like revile the out group and more recent work done by people like uh, like like Paul Bloom and others with small children show probably many people have heard of these experiments where you can randomly assign three year olds to t shirts of different colors and uh, just that trivial assignment and the kids know that they didn't earn these t shirts they didn't do anything to deserve them they recognize it was random. And nevertheless, all of a sudden, the green T-shirt wearing kids think the blue T-shirt wearing kids are awful and should be punished and, you know, don't deserve any toys or stuff like that. I mean, it's it's you just scratch the surface of a human being and you get this type of quality. But it is also the case that you don't need you uh, you don't. It, it's it, it, and, and there's a reason, by the way, that this evolved. So one of the one of the theories, I think, probably true, that the evolution of this in-group preference, uh, that it evolved as a as a t- tool for reducing the scale of social interactions. So if you imagine in your mind a kind of large group of people, let's say arbitrarily a thousand people, and you told those people you have to cooperate with each other, 
it would be very difficult to sustain cooperation if each person had to cooperate with all thousand other people. And uh, But one way to get more cooperation on average out of the thousand people than telling them, okay, everyone, cooperate with each other, is, to, is for people to evolve the capacity to only to draw distinctions between different groups and only co- cooperate with their own group. And if they do that, then all of a sudden, everyone is cooperating more because now instead of cooperating with a 1,000 people, you have 10 groups of 100, each cooperating among themselves. That reduction of scale is actually quite efficient from an evolutionary perspective in encouraging this desirable property, which is cooperativity, even among the whole group, at the price of cultivating this sort of in-group bias. That's one idea. But others have pointed out that even if that's the case, why, why is there... Why do you revile the outgroup? I mean, why can't you just love your own group without hating other groups? Must the hatred of others necessarily be coupled with the love of, of ourselves? And here also there are a variety of interesting ideas as to why and how this has evolved. Um, one has to do with group competition. And there are a number of interesting models, for example, by Sergei Gavriletz and others and mathematicians have modeled this, and there is some suggestion that the in order to optimally evolve cooperation within the group, you had to have some kind of um, tension or competition with other groups. Anyway, the, the bottom line is that it is the case that that we evolve these this capacity for tribalism. It's it's depressing. It's 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 fundamental. It's inevitable. Uh, but this, there are ways out of this. A tribalistic tendency that we have, other tools that natural selection has also equipped us with. Um, and, and let me shed a couple, of light, a couple of ideas about that. So imagine, imagine once again that you have some large group, for the sake of argument right now, let's say a nation, and, um, and then beneath that you have subgroups, sort of groups of people, who, which could be defined by language or ethnicity or, uh, or, or religion or occupation or sports teams, you know, that they like or whatever the hell it is. And then below that, you have individuals. And right now we're saying that there's a problem because there is or sort of worldwide, there's a rise in nationalism and tribalism and kind of intergroup animosity, for example. Uh, uh, how can we cope with that? Well, one idea is to step up a level and to take advantage of the fact that our species evolved, evolved the capacity to draw the boundaries between us and them, essentially arbitrarily, as we discussed with the t-shirt experiments. There's nothing sort of God-given about these boundaries. You know, why we, for example, might care about language, for instance. You know, why do, why do we care about the language and discriminate against people who speak the wrong language rather than discriminate or have the wrong religion rather than the people who are the wrong sports team, for instance? That's arbitrary, as we said with the t-shirt experiment. So one idea is to exploit this, this capacity that we have and step up a level to the, to the level of the whole group and say, for instance, we're all Americans. That's the boundary that matters. So we don't need these other group boundaries. And this has also been a part of our political tradition in this country. Alexis de Tocqueville talks about this, this, this notion of the melting pot, this notion of anyone can be an American. Uh, we're a nation of immigrants, after all. You know, within two generations, people tend to assimilate. This is seen as a, a phenomenal accomplishment of the American experiment and is part of our heritage. So that's one tool we have. Another tool we have, however, is to go down a level. So one of the things we haven't talked about is that one of the distinctive features of our species, as I discuss, is and that is part of this idea of the social suite, is the capacity for individual identity. Now, in our species, we do this with our faces. Every human face is different. 
those portions of our genome that code for our, vase, our faces are very variable and give us the capacity to each of us have a different face. All of our pancreases should work the same, ideally, but all of our faces should look different, ideally. This is actually an evolutionary luxury. Other animals don't don't communicate their individuality and say, this is me, not someone else. You know, Other animals don't do this. And furthermore, we have the capacity not just to signal identity, but to detect it. We have large portions of our brain that are of devoted to the ability to distinguish among these faces. So that's also expensive, evolutionarily speaking. So we have the capacity to be individuals, which incidentally is paradoxically is crucial to our capacity to live together. Uh, this is another irony that, you know, we have to first be individuals in order for us to assemble ourselves into the kinds of societies we have. Anyway, the point is, is that this also gives us a tool to efface tribalism because now we can go down a level to the level of individuals. And instead of thinking of other people as members of a group, we just we are able to and we can think of each person as a person. And this, too, has been part of our tradition. If you think, for instance, of Martin Luther King's famous invocation that he looked forward to the time when his children would be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, this is, in essence, what King is saying. He's saying that each of us is an individual. You shouldn't judge people based on their group membership. So, so to sum up, even though tribalism is, is a part of human nature, uh, it's it's not the only tool we have at our disposal to live together. Uh, we have other tools as well. So there's this issue of life experience here. When I was reading the book, I realized you and I had somewhat similar childhoods in the sense that we traveled to a few different countries growing up, and we made friends from we made friends with people from different countries. And when you have that sort of experience, I think maybe you are a bit optimistic about the ability of people to cooperate. But there's some people who do have provincial lives, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean for a variety of reasons. They don't travel. uh, They don't really meet people from other countries. And that's another reason for nationalism. So do you think there's a way to get people who don't necessarily travel or meet people from other races or cultures to get along better using the social suite? Well, first of all, I would answer by seconding your notion that there's something tremendous about contact especially pleasant contact with dissimilar people. Um, I think anyone who's had the experience of of um, not only going to another part of the world, but just interacting in a very human way with people who have very different backgrounds can come to the recognition, once again, of this idea we discussed earlier of our common humanity, of our shared humanity, because most people, in fact, care about very similar things. They love their partners and their families. They are interested in spending time with their friends. They they live lives to the extent that they can, seeking meaning. These are very fundamental qualities about human beings. And now it is it is it is true that travel is extremely helpful. There's a famous quote by Mark Twain that I, I just brought up and I'm going to read, which is travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. So this idea too, in fact, there's a, another famous saying, uh, I think by Marcus Aurelius, uh, one of the Roman Caesars, I don't remember, basically making the same point. So your question, however, is what about people who, you know, let's say can't go somewhere else or haven't gone somewhere else? You know, I don't think you need to go far in order to have this basic insight. You know, maybe it's enough to just go next door or, you know, to the adjoining state. 
uh, or just to make the effort to spend some time listening to someone who has dissimilar views than you, but then also searching for areas of similarity. This idea of being able to tolerate that someone who has many desirable and appealing qualities and ideas also shares some, has some qualities and ideas that you don't find so appealing is a sort of a, a mark of maturity and not just worldliness. Right. I mean, it's an issue for me. You do bring up that yeah, if two cultures get along well, that's a good thing. I think it's especially an issue when there's a history of conflict be- between two cultures. When I moved from Saudi Arabia to India as a child, I recall realizing that if you were an Indian, you were supposed to hate Pakistan, which was really strange for me because some of my best friends were from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And I gradually realized over time that this there's, there's this history of hatred between the two countries. And there's probably not much of an opportunity to contact each other. Yes, but we're not bound by the past. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I think what's relevant is what's happening is what's happening now. Now, I'm not saying the past is unimportant. I'm not saying we should be ignorant of the past. Far from it. But um, but I, I think a person who who lives their lives uh, dictated by events that happened a long time ago is is missing the chance to have their own experience of the world and to interact with it afresh. I, I don't want to come across as you know Dr. Pangloss, you know as as you know this is the best of all possible worlds and you know nothing bad. I am aware, keenly aware, that every century, every millennium is replete with horrors. You know, there's been there's been slavery and warfare and venal leaders and and greed and utter destruction since time immemorial. You know, Tamerlane, uh, you know, as as he swept across the Asia, they they would slaughter everyone in a city. They would surround the city and say, "Surrender, or we will kill you." And they almost inevitably won. And then they would create mountains of skulls of one or two hundred thousand people killed within a day or two. I mean, just extraordinary destruction, let alone the Second World War, let alone all the, you know, all the violent, horrible things that any person has, the pogroms and the inquisitions and, and, the, uh, and slavery and colonialism. And my God, it, we're also awful, we humans, aren't we? I mean, we are just a piece of work. But the truth is, even despite all of that, and incidentally, those are things that have occurred in historical time. My book is focused on the long arc of our evolution over hundreds of thousands of years where we didn't engage in such mass warfare. We didn't have such weapons of destruction uh, and, you know, conquest was not uh, such an issue. Um, so, so, but even despite all of that, we are also good. And in fact, I would argue that fundamentally the good must have outweighed the bad because if, for example, every time I came near you, you killed me or filled me with fake news or falsehoods or were mean to me, as a species, we would be better off being solitary animals. So the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. This doesn't mean they weren't costs, but the benefits are also there. And I think, I think we have this tendency to ignore those benefits uh, to both scientists and the, and the person on the street have this tendency to focus on our propensity for evil and violence and selfishness and tribalism and overlook our equally strong, in fact, I would argue stronger propensities for love and and friendliness and cooperation and teaching, which also are parts of human nature and frankly deserve their due. Towards the end of the book, you talk about four accusations that are leveled at people who study human universals, and I don't want to talk about all four of them, but one of them is positivism. And that's the idea that everything has to be measurable if you want to have a serious scientific discussion about it. 
or more generally that the world should, can and should be appreciated through the scientific method. You have a good elaborate argument about how to deal with positivism or the accusation that you're a positivist and that's a bad thing. And I agree with that. But have you ever succeeded in convincing a non-positivist or anti-positivist that some degree of positivism is pragmatic or useful? <laughs> I uh, maybe not. I don't know. But I suppose one strategy in an interacting with someone who who rejects altogether claims about the objectivity of the world is to inquire of them how they think we should go about appreciating the truth of the world. I mean, there are some people, for example, who believe that that the world there's revelation. You know, there's a kind of religious. Uh, uh, you know, is is the religion is the path to understanding the truth of the world. Other people. Uh, believe in in uh, force, you know, might makes right. Uh, that's the way we're going to determine, uh, you know, whoever whoever is power gets to decide, you know, what the truth of the world is, and that science therefore has been utterly corrupted by the fact that it is a product of powerful people. Let's say, um, and incidentally, there is some truth to that. I mean, there's no doubt that science has has been affected like any other human activity by the frailties and the biases of that, you know afflict all human activities. But that doesn't speak to whether there is, in fact, an out there out there. I think there is. Nor does it speak to the fact that we can, if we wish, apply the scientific method. I mean, all the kind of high school stuff, the college stuff that everyone learned about, uh, you know, the philosophy of science, you know, that there are theories that are tested against empirical data and there's constant replication and testing for generalizability and, you know, the sort of careful measurement and all the kinds of elements of the scientific method, but that is the best way, and in fact, it is the most successful way to uh, appreciate the truth of the world. And and to, to skeptics, I would even say, how do you think the technology that you're listening to us right now was made? It was not made by revelation, and it was not made by someone sort of declaring that this technology would come to pass. It was made, it was made by first by British scientists and French scientists in, in discovering electricity 200 years ago. And uh, and then a whole bunch of other scientists and engineers and other people working for hundreds of years suddenly brings it, makes it possible for me to talk to you. And if, if they were not right, it wouldn't work. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it, the proof is in the pudding. This is the other thing that I think is very valuable about science is that reality is a cruel mistress. You know, you can't wish something to be the case. It either is or it isn't the case. And if you speculate wrong, you will quickly be, be disproven or inevitably be disproven. Maybe not quickly. There are falsehoods, scientific falsehoods, which can last a long time. Yeah, as an aside about audio technology, I read an interesting article about how World War II was a factor and how Germany developed the best loudspeakers because they wanted to broadcast Adolf Hitler's voice for crowds. And then oh, wow. um, Britain developed some of the best audio equipment to spy on the Germans. <laughs> yeah, so, unfortunately, warfare. History, though. I mean, warfare, unfortunately, I mean, this is the other truth also. I mean, there is, there's a lot of, I mean, we're moving very fast. I'm well aware or reasonably well aware of the history of science and Many technological innovations have been products of the of the necessity or or the reality of war. You know, the, the famously, uh, um, Euripides was you know uh, made scientific discoveries because he was in the service of the I think he was the the the, the monarch in Syracuse, and of course the Medici's hired Leonardo da Vinci, and part of what Leonardo was trying to do is develop machines of war, and the uh, the atomic you know age was brought in by the Americans supporting 
the development of the Manhattan Project. And it goes on and on. Nitrogen mustards that's widely used as a chemotherapy first were developed as poison gas in World War I. Uh, so, you know, there is no doubt that, that the seeking of a technological advantage due to war uh, has has been a powerful impetus in scientific discovery. And, and part of that is that science is often expensive and you need a state actor to support it, either a monarch like the Medici's or, you know, a wealthy democracy like ours that has the resources to support this activity. Now, it's not, it's not the only way to be a scientist. Uh, you know, there are back, many discoveries have been made either just by thinking, you know, Einstein, for example, uh, <laughs> made... Just just thinking about him almost brings tears to my eyes. You know, didn't need a ton of resources to make his key discoveries and backyard scientists and so forth. But anyway, there is an intersection, you're right, between warfare and science also. Yeah, Einstein definitely lived in a different world. Anyway, thanks for joining us on the show. It's been great having you. Any final words about your next project? Um, I have a new idea for a new book. You know, I, I, I run a lab. My lab is called the Human Nature Lab at Yale University. and um, the lab is engaged. I'm, I, I think of my lab as sort of the island of lost toys. You know, I, I have brilliant young people who, who feel like they're misfits in their fields and they find their way to my lab and, it, and they lift me up and they're creative and inventive and they just need a, uh, you know, kind of a, a nurturing environment in which to thrive intellectually and scientifically in which I try to provide. So I, I, I feel blessed to work with these people. And we're working in many areas, working in social robotics, working in the microbiome. We're working in public health intervention, the developing world. We have a whole raft of network science projects, and we have lots and lots of crazy ideas. And in addition to that, I, I, I do try to write books, but I only produce a book once every 10 years. So it'll be a while before the next one comes out. But the lab is active scientifically, and I'm enormously proud of it. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Nick's book is Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. There are many parts of Blueprint that we didn't talk about, so if you'd like to hear more about the book, you can check out recent episodes of two other podcasts in which Nick talked about this book. One of them is the Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris, which has a longer episode. The shorter episode is on the Psychology podcast with Scott Barry Kaufman. You can also follow Nick on Twitter at N.A. Christakis. The show notes for this episode include a link to Donald Brown's book, Human Universals, which Nick mentioned, and also a link to a more recent book that I'd recommend, Our Common Denominator, Human Universals Revisited, by Christoph Antweiler. The show notes also include links to Let's Shake Up the Social Sciences, an essay by Nick Christakis that might be of interest to those of you who are in the social sciences. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it helps other people find out about the show. And you can reach me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at chrismartin76. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.